So I am uh, a little bit overwhelmed this week with stuff going on, and I only have two titles to talk about, including our feature. I only streamed one thing, and it's the thing that we both saw. Um, so it might be uh, expedited, but I have things to say about the things that oh, sure. I'm going to say. It might be a mini-sode. I don't think sure. that I watched much more. I'm trying to think. I mean, we watch something every night. So it mm-hmm. stands to reason that something right. was a movie. Oh, guess what? I watched yeah. The Roommate, 2011 psychological thriller. Okay. It's Film. real bad. It's real bad. It's basically like a, a single white female ripoff that a 40-year-old, 18-year-old goes to college <laughs> and her roommate becomes obsessed with her. And the one of those, yeah, and one and the main young woman, her sister died, and so the roommate kind of wants to become her sister for her. And there are college hijinks and attacks and creepy professors who need to be taught a lesson. I, I mean, it's just it's real bad. It's real bad. Yeah. Wow. But it's exactly my kind of thing. Sure, I I enjoyed it. I I howled throughout. Mm-hmm. Um, Billy Zane is in it in a That's... in a rare appearance. Wow! Yeah, and Rose's mom from Titanic is also in it. Oh wow! So together, back together at last. Yeah. Um, Winslet turned it down though, so oh, I don't know what that's about. She would have been great for the role of the freshman because everybody yeah. is. Uh... Yeah. So I mean, I recommend it highly if you feel like watching that. But that. Um, Sure. My Josh has just reminded me is what we watched. You know, something that is on my radar in a weird, half-hearted, kind of ironic way is the 2000 and what was it? I think it's also 2011 um, film Josie and the Pussycats, which is on HBO this month. And I've never been on my radar. And now everybody on film Twitter is like, oh, give it another chance. Check it out. It's insane, but it's great. So what's it about? I mean, it's just a, a big screen adaptation of... I think it was just a Hanna-Barbera cartoon, Josie and the Pussycats. It's a girl band who oh. become pop stars, but apparently it's a very campy movie. It's got Alan Cumming. It's got po- uh, Parker Posey, um, Richardy Grant. So it's kind of, uh, yeah, I think it's, I think it's like a camp classic. Well, I'll totally watch that. That's not a recommendation because I haven't seen it yet, but it's on, uh, maybe we should give it a watch and talk about it next time. Well, it's a recommendation. Yeah. It's everything that I love. And since you have, I assume, access to HBO now, I, I have I have access to HBO for another two days. So, oh, all right. Oh, and I see Tara Reid is in it. That's a famous name lately. Oh yes, yes, yes. Probably a different one, but who can say? Um. All right, Dan. So since we only have these two big titles, and I'm going to walk us through Syriana, you know what that means for you right now? Going to bring us some bad education. Yes. All right. So, Bad Education, 2019 American comedy drama film. Directed by Corey Finley and written by Mike Mikowski. And it's based on the New York Magazine article titled The Bad Superintendent by Robert Kolker. So Hugh Jackman is the superintendent of schools, Frank Tassone, in a much-liked school district in Long Island. And this school is famous for getting people into good colleges. And Frank himself, in a pretty wild way 
knows every student and knows every faculty member and knows all of their hobbies and can tell you what they got on an English exam two years ago. And he's very popular. And Allison Janney plays Pam Glucken, who is what the assistant superintendent who kind of handles all the books. And I don't think it's a spoiler to let people know that these two are stealing exorbitant amounts of money from the school district to fund their lavish lifestyles. And because they're so well-liked and have such long tenure in the school, no one really questions their accounting until um, some of this starts to get uncovered by um, Rachel Bargava, played by Geraldine Viswanathan. Breakout star of Blockers in 2019, 18? Apologies, Geraldine, Um, who apparently is a composite character of several staff members on the high school paper start to see that things don't add up and that um, bids were not handled appropriately for this big sky bridge that they're going to be building or hopefully can if the budget goes through and everything starts to fall apart. So anyway, a lot of fun people in this. Uh, Steven Spinella, Annalie Ashford, excellent. This is is the role she should always be playing. And uh, Ray Romano, who can't stay out of movies lately he's kind of like the the go-to that kind of guy i I really enjoyed this movie a lot i thought the story was interesting Uh, the actors are completely top-notch it uh it's interesting that it got bought by hbo and so it's kind of out of the film world race because i imagine it would have been a player in this year's truncated season for sure um but it will win its emmys i guess instead yeah for sure what did before i have more to say about this but what did what did you think of this yeah i really i really enjoyed it um i saw the cast i saw the tone and the subject matter and the fact that this is the director of thoroughbreds which we Mm -hmm. both enjoyed which is a lot i expected this to be a little more twisted than it is a little dark i mean it's pretty dark story but it it plays out pretty much as a a semi-straightforward true crime story uh, I enjoyed it a lot. My wife, who does not like to watch movies with me, does not like movies where things don't go well. Uh, because she's a public school teacher, she was immediately into it. And so she watched the whole thing with me and wouldn't let me finish it without her. Um, I guess, yeah. So the movie, the interesting thing the movie does, the thing, the thing that I find the most interesting is also the thing that perhaps is controversial because it's the most twisting to reality. And that is that, you know, as you explained the plot, um, the superintendent and assistant superintendent are both embezzling money, but this telling of the story withholds from us that the beloved superintendent is involved. You wonder if that's perhaps it. You may be suspicious, but it it lets him be sympathetic and it lets you kind of hope that he's as good a guy as he seems for a very long time. And then it kind of just, you know, uh, spirals out from there and then things are, are revealed and, and withheld that perhaps were not secrets in real life. But um, I don't know. I enjoyed the performances and I enjoyed those reveals. I enjoyed going on the journey of this movie. And there were a lot of like, what moments as it as, you know, it's last half unfolded and you realize what uh, double, triple, quadruple lives these people have been living. Uh, The thing that rang the most true to my wife, uh, you know, we were you and I were messaging as we do sometimes after seeing a new movie. And uh, you were wondering, you know, this this isn't realistic, right? A a, um, superintendent who walks around and knows all the students' names. And it's true that they're not like on the campus walking around giving people finger guns. But 
But the, the thing about this for her that resonated the most is not the idea necessarily of the embezzlement, but it was the notion of anything to save the reputation of the school and how you could convince people to be complicit with you in crime by using what about our reputation? What about the funding? What about the budget vote? What about the people saying, you know, this, the town, a town is so wrapped up with the reputation of its school district that it kind of is uh, uh, exposed as a real, uh, as a real problem by a story like this. Um, and that was the part that really resonated with her in some specific mm -hmm. ways. Um, anyway, but yeah, I, I had a, great, a good time with it. I liked it a lot. Yeah, I bet that part was true to, pretty true to life. And I can understand the place of the school board when they first understand the theft, not to its full measure, but just initially when they realize that something is amiss and some money is missing and clearly this person is at fault. I can understand that deliberation of thinking, okay, we just need her to pay it back and she needs to lose her job and we don't want a scandal out of this. I, I can understand right. that that hope, you know, even though that turned out not to be the right decision because it was so much worse than they thought. But I always, I don't know that I always thought he had something to do with it, but he seemed way too defensive of her in that meeting. Yeah. He He's trying to hide something and she seemed all too shocked that he would be willing to throw her under the bus. Right. Which and she writes a note to him that turns out to be very prescient. Right. Yeah, and it should be said too that um, Tassone does not like his the portrayal of his sexuality in the movie, and that was curious to me because I know this was early two thousands, and if he is a you know has decades as an educator, you know bringing your orientation into the classroom can be problematic, and so maybe he was more of a teaching area era where you would be closeted, but the movie tried to make it seem like he was completely closeted and he says that's not the case. Um, right. And his various relationships were supposedly kept from his, you know, spouse of, or, you know, domestic partner of 30 years or so. And he says, that's not the case. We had an open relationship and when we would travel, we would engage in other encounters. And so then I wonder why would the movie go in those directions? Right. It makes yeah, it, that seems a strange change it, to make. Right. It seems like unless that's what actually happened, then you're just trying to make his gayness salacious or something right, that he's right. ashamed of or trying to hide. It's one thing to keep it out of a classroom if you figure it's no one's business but your own. But the idea that, you know, he has this picture of his deceased wife on his desk right. and the idea that nobody knew he was married Saint before maneuver. yes or that nobody knew that he had this uh long-term partner everybody did apparently and yeah so I, I felt like that was strange on the screenwriter's part and the person that he kind of took up with in las vegas was not a former student that was an invention of the screenplay and since the screenplay was written by a student at that school it kind of made me wonder his perspective, if he right. knew him or if he had heard some things anecdotally about how this guy operated, that it made sense to try to put him with a former student. Because all these years later, there was nothing unethical about him running into a you know now 30-year-old or so former student right. and deciding right. to date. I read it in a certain way because at a certain point early in the movie... Um, I guess when Pam's embezzlement had been 
kind of exposed, but he was doing kind of damage control. And then it, 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 you know, it reveals him going to Vegas and having this encounter there. I, I, I thought I figured out where it was going. I thought, I thought Pam was going to basically end up using that against him when things got really ugly and that, you know, this being not that long ago, but maybe long enough ago that it would be uh, some, something Mm, that you could consider mud to sling at somebody, but it just did not go in that direction. Um, and but you're it saying very curious. But you're saying maybe the screenwriter was using that that we would think, well, maybe he's not involved, but maybe what she has on him isn't his involvement in this scheme, but right. his yeah, maybe. Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. All, very curious, and I would be I would like to hear. And also maybe the real uh Tasson, is that his name? Maybe he's mm-hmm. maybe he's still full of shit. Maybe maybe the student knows something, or maybe there's right. a point of contention where people think they know stuff about him and he's denying it. Or maybe the movie just is weird and made some very strange choices. In telling the story. Oh, uh, very entertaining a, movie. Yeah, he's a sociopath, and I don't take him at his word. Um, at, at the same point, the points that he makes uh, do have the ring of truth to them. It yeah. seems really unlikely that he would have been able to stay closeted while being partnered with somebody for 30 years. And, you know. Right. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, yeah, very strange. And just unnecessary. What a salacious and crazy story without yes. doing that. It, I mean, it made that character more interesting to me, but, yeah. um, and it was just fun to watch it unfold and how wild that he continues to receive his huge pension, I know. I know. you know, all he yeah. stole from the taxpayers and keeps getting paid by them. Right. This movie kind of does for uh public education system. What, uh, our, our feature movie, Syriana does for the, you know, global energy politics just shows what an insane chaotic uh house of cards it is the whole system yeah anyway uh yeah so that's a recommendation for me all right let's take a little break and then we'll talk about syriana when we come back Okay, um, this week's movie was my selection. Uh, I was We were just talking off mic. Well, we can't talk off mic because we're not in the same place, but we were talking off air, and I was apologizing for picking the ultimate homework movie. But I wanted to revisit the 2005 geopolitical drama thriller film Syriana, directed by Stephen Gagan and written by him based on the book See No Evil by Robert Baer. This is, uh, this is basically Gagan cashing in on his uh, clout from the success of Traffic, which he wrote and Steven Soderbergh directed. And um, this was a, uh, gosh, it's got a 6.9 out of 10 on IMDb, but the user rating, but I think it was well-received critically. Oh, yeah, this is a four-star Ebert movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I, yeah, I have a lot to say about the movie, and I think a lot of our discussion will just be sorting out... <laughs> what the hell's going on but um it is basically one of these there was there were movies like this in the aughts in the early aughts that were 
geopolitical ensemble intertwining story movies. Traffic by Gagan was another one. The movies like Babel. Uh, Babel was a little bit more of just an exploration of of humanity than a, than a particular issue. But I feel like this was the kind of movie that got made a lot then, which was an attempt by a fairly intelligent writer to um, synthesize the complexities of a big issue that people tend to have simplistic views on. So this is a post 9-11 movie. And it's it's I feel like this movie wants to address an America that kind of is either you're liberal and you think that, you know, oil is this treasure in another land that's not ours by right that we're waging war over. Or maybe you're on the other side and you think that it's a resource we need and it's about freedom and it's about terrorists. And and this is a movie that seems like it's trying to chill everybody out and explore the complexities. Uh, I think it's. Well, I'll get to all that later when I talk about the difference in watching this now versus watching it then. But basically, we have a series, four or five intertwining plots. So the main uh, impetus for everything is a pending merger between two oil companies and it, who are both after some premium petroleum fields in Kazakhstan, which both America and China are vying for rights over. The merger of these giant companies in America is coming under government scrutiny. So you've got Jeffrey Wright playing a lawyer who is hired simply to provide the uh, the facade of oversight to get the Department of Justice off of their backs. You have Matt Damon, who works for an energy company and is trying to get the ear of a Middle Eastern prince who is in line to become emir, or is he? played by Alexander Siddig, a uh, great performer that I've seen in a number of other roles. Damon can't even get an audience with the prince uh, when he goes to his, his summer home in Spain for a party, but then there's a tragedy that occurs. Damon's son is drowned in the, the emir's pool, and uh, he manages to leverage this tragedy to work his way into the inner circle of this prince who he believes is going to be the next king, the next emir, uh, meanwhile, George Clooney is a CIA agent named Bob who uh, is insinuating himself into the arms trade. He uh, the film opens with a a a arms deal gone kind of bad where uh, he sells two missile launchers to a couple of Iranian gentlemen in Tehran. But one of them is immediately redirected to a, an Egyptian individual uh, which really throws Clooney off. And so when the uh, when he assassinates the two Iranians, who uh, two things happen. One, he has now actually traded arms and put a missile launcher into circulation elsewhere in the world, not knowing where it's going to turn up. And the two men that he has assassinated are actually Iranian agents. So when he comes back to America, the CIA is distancing themselves from him, pretending that he's a rogue. And then when he finally gets himself back uh, into the Middle East, he is captured by Masawi, who is another agent, an Iranian agent played by Mark Strong. Uh, and then he's torturing George Clooney until uh, the head of Hezbollah comes in and stops him. And uh, I, there's got to be more. I know there's more. What else is there? I watched this movie. I was lost through it from beginning to end. It's I should one of those 
emperor's new clothes that everyone's you want to feel like you're smart and so what a great movie and it was well made i suppose but i could not tell one end from the other and i'm even what looking at this plot synopsis i can't remember what the characters were named i imagine it was quite a thrill at the rap party when all the actors in the film were able to meet each other at last because right. they shared no scenes together yeah the, it's very strange because I re, I watched this movie in 2005. I went to see it in the theater and I owned it on home video and I I know I've returned to it, but I felt more lost now than I did back then. So I must, it's not that I understood better. I guess I just didn't care and I was happier to just let it wash over me. Um, I followed, I followed like at a baseline level what was going on and then I had to look things up later. I had no idea that those were Iranian agents that George Clooney was selling the arms to. I didn't know the other guy was an Egyptian. But here's something that also I didn't know. Oh, that's the storyline I completely forgot about is the migrant workers from Pakistan who have been displaced by all the changing ownership of the fields throughout these mergers and buyouts and the Chinese and the Americans. Uh, And you see this migrant worker you see the process of him basically becoming radicalized as a terrorist. And it, do- it doesn't play out the way that you would think. This is not somebody who saw his family die. And so he re- swears revenge on America. This is a guy who needs a job. And in order to do that, he has to learn Arabic. And it just turns out that the school you go to, to learn Arabic, there's a cleric who's going to teach you. And by the way, I'm trusting Stephen Gagan that this is the way it works. That's kind of my, my takeaway of this movie is that when I watched this 15 years ago, I just took it as if I was being taught. I was being shown. This is great. I know I'm, I'm doing my homework. I'm understanding better. Now I realize this is just one white dude in LA's version of a smart person's attempt to look at something this complex. That's one of my takeaways is that I think it's very good, but I also, I was very aware that I feel like this was the tendency back then, which was movies like even movies like crash, which we are, you know, already did our time talking about a thought that they could like solve an issue, just look at all sides and figure it out and give you this picture through art. And then you would be like, it would be like, boom, understanding. I don't feel like that's the way anymore. I feel like that was a very 2000s thing. Today, I feel like we would want to see the small, intimate story from one perspective that was not familiar, preferably written and directed by a filmmaker from that context to help us understand, you know, one other point of entry into a a complicated thing. So anyway, this is my rambling about the movie, Dan. You already kind of tipped your hat that you were lost and confused and didn't, didn't love your time with Syriana. No, I didn't understand any of the storylines. I don't know that I'd want to spend time with any of the people. And you're right, though, that this is such a 2000-ish film. Post 9-11, there were so many movies like this where everyone was kind of congratulating themselves for understanding something complex or putting something into the public eye that nobody was trying to understand. Right. And, and, every, ugh. and so I did notice that this was number two best film for Ebert for 2005. And of course, a pit emerged in my stomach because I've now discovered what I figured was true. His favorite that year was Crash. Oh, no. So Ebert Ebert liked Crash and then Syriana and then Munich, which is Mm. another 
2000 y sort of film, even right. though it's not about those events. It sort of is in that world. Then he liked sure. Junebug, which is a fun little Amy Adams right. vehicle, and then broke back. Don't wow. worry, though. King Kong is on the list, too. Oh, great. <laughs> so, so this was just 2005, I think. And if you've got people like Damon and Clooney, who, I mean, Clooney especially, who has outspoken political leanings, um, putting forth some stuff about politics and energy and corruption that maybe most people aren't aware of day to day. You're just like, yeah, yeah. And kind of the hysteria post 9-11 and the collective trauma. I think there was something where it was something of a balm, I think, that people could sit in a theater and just watch this stuff. And thank God it didn't make too much sense because we didn't want it to make sense. But we wanted to feel like we were watching this thing and understanding better this thing that had terrorized us. And now I think 20 years later, we're like, what? This has no center. There's so many more big problems than this. Yeah. Who were we? Michael Moore yelling at George Bush (laughs) at the Oscars? Come on. Yeah. Yeah. I think I still like this movie better than you do, but all of that. It would be hard not to. (laughs) Okay. Wow. And it's as meaningless as its title. What does it mean? Oh, well, I've got that for you. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. And again, you wouldn't glean this from the movie to make no. no mistake. This is all from supplemental reading. What is a Syriana? Syriana is, and this is very interesting. This is one of the things that I find interesting and still resonant about the movie. So this is maybe the last thing that to talk about like that. But so Syriana is a term employed by think tanks, usually conservative think tanks that uh, are talking about a hypothetical realignment of the Middle East. Pax Syriana or just Syriana is this idea of like a remade if it it would you know it would be like the generals in some European war cobbling together a new republic out of the places they just conquered and so it's basically American politicians looking at a way well if we could do this to the Middle East then it would be to our our optimal benefit what is Syriana Syriana is like the name of that version of the Middle East. They t- it's like the hypothetical utopia of a, of a, a, a Middle East we could work with. Utopian if, Middle East. So it's basically there's a group in this movie called the Coalition for the Liberation of Iran, which is the kind of right wing group that sprung up after 9-11, which basically is a bunch of hyper conservative people who want war. And they, you know, so they're going to back nominally progressive reformers like Nasir in the movie. But it's about basically in the name of getting oil and spreading, quote, freedom, we're going to align ourselves with with the good parts of, of Iran and, and Syria and, and the Middle East. We're going to go and, and you know, it, it's this kind of and I f- that's the one thing where I feel like in this movie, you've got that f- speech, which is kind of famous. Ebert wrote a whole separate little answer man thing about that speech that uh, Tim Blake Nelson gives about corruption being how we win and corruption being good. And then you've got that the stuff like that liberation Iranian liberation group, which I feel like those are the sensibilities that now run America. Like they were kind of cropping up. They were one element in the stew in this movie, in the post 9-11 world. And now I feel like that version of right wing America is basically having a heyday right now. I thought that was like a parody of itself. Who's the Looney Tune? Who's the rooster or whatever he is? Tim Blake Nelson character? That guy who has that speech about corruption. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was like that. Yeah, a little too on the nose with the casting in a movie that's otherwise, you know, almost obtuse about not being on the nose. But yeah. Yeah. So Clooney. Right. I I think 
I'm going to say that I didn't see this. I'm going to say it seems unthinkable that I would have missed the supporting actor winning performance, but I can't imagine that I would have supported this. Is it a bad performance? No, it's a fine performance, but I think he won because he was George Clooney and because it felt like an important film at the time when everyone was still confused about what had happened. Because we got Matt Dillon for Crash on the roster. Oh, boy. And uh, William Hurt for a History of Violence, which, by the way, is a would be a good movie for this for this show. Yeah, I like. Yeah, that I love that movie. And uh, Gyllenhaal for Brokeback, and uh, Paul Giamatti for Cinderella Man. I think in my old age, I would have bo- voted for Gyllenhaal, but that's mm-hmm. th- that's on the nose too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, this feels like Clooney. Uh, it is weird to me that he got his Oscar for this. Um, and what has he feels, done? Yeah, but this this just feels like an activist role almost yes. like this is his pet project. And I like, I like some of the stuff that he and his, his uh, Grant Heslov, his producing partner that they made, you know, after he got enough cachet as a movie star and he decided to make different weird things and works with the Coens and this and that. I like some of that stuff. And I, again, I kind of like this movie too, but yeah, his, his being in it and his, the, the role he plays just feels a little bit overwrought. And uh, as you say, important with a capital I. Uh, oh, there was a point I was barreling towards earlier, and then I got like I redirected myself five times. But the, the only other thing, I, not that I'm trying to say like, look, it all makes sense, but I didn't know this either until I did supplemental reading. But in the end, the movie ends with this radicalized young man uh, on a on a, like a little skiff on a little boat, and they're celebrating the merger on this giant tanker, and they steer the boat into the tanker and it cuts but we it's implied that there is a terrorist attack an explosion that presumably kills all the people the explosive device on the boat is the other missile launcher that Clooney lost in the opening scene all right so here's my question um he lost a missile launcher in the opening scene well no he he was doing an arms deal he's posing as an american wanting to do a deal when he's really a cia agent he doesn't know that the other iranian dudes are also agents of their government he thinks they're just dudes terrorists who want a weapon they're supposed to buy two missile launchers get in their car and then george clooney has put a car bomb in their car which is why he doesn't really get freaked out when it explodes as he walks away but in the middle of it they take one of the two missile launchers and they go and slide it behind a curtain. And Clooney's like, what the hell are you doing? This is, this is supposed to be two for you. And uh, they were like, what do you care? And then he goes in the other room and he sees a guy and the guy has the, an Egyptian headdress and he doesn't speak Farsi. And so that's like uh, he loses one of them. He actually now has traded. He was supposed to be taking out two arms traders, but he has now put one in one more thing in circulation. And then ironically at the end of the movie, it's the thing that, explodes this giant oil tanker well that's really smart and i'm gonna reread this plot synopsis the only other thing uh i think bears mentioning which is something i was bewildered by the jeffrey wright stuff and i felt like it must be important because Je- we kind of right. meet jeffrey wright first and then we our last moment of the film is with jeffrey wright and apparently a lot of people don't even realize that's his father the drunk housemate that he has I guessed that it was his father, yeah. but I, I, it was only a guess. So I'm just reporting what I've read. This is not me having special insight or being smart or gleaning any of this. But apparently at the heart of all the different storylines in this movie is a father-son relationship that is contentious or otherwise dramatic or you know means something. Uh, you have George Clooney and Max Minghella in one brief scene 
basically the son who feels like he he's lost both his parents because they're both involved in um i guess cooney's a stand-in for the author bear who he and his wife are were, were intelligence agents and so there's that contentious relationship there's of course matt damon uh loses his son and then is so offended by you know by the overtures of the prince but then actually ends up leveraging that it to get into his inner circle there is the prince himself who is the son of the emir who it feels like he's being passed over for the younger son who's kind of an idiot there is the father of the migrant worker who becomes radicalized and kind of the uh you know the way that this kind of separates them and then there is uh, Jeffrey Wright and his father who drinks and judges him for being involved in Washington because nothing good can come of it. And then by the end of the movie, I don't feel like this is expressed explicitly, but I guess Jeffrey Wright is feeling so ashamed of, of his of what he's become and what he's seen and been through that there's kind of like a, a deference to the father of like, oh, I guess getting drunk and tuning out makes more sense than trying to go in and play the game or something like that. Just getting more understanding between father and son. Again, that's not my analysis. That's what I read. Well, my analysis is that the father represents the audience in 2005 <laughs> who felt like they'd just seen a movie that was coherent. Right. I really, I really went into this just with, with an open mind thinking maybe i saw this before and i could not and i'm pretty i am pretty dense when it comes to following movie plots i need to be handheld i was lost fair enough it is an interesting kind of artifact of of the 2000 of post 9-11 early post 9-11 cinema totally is activist cinema uh yeah it is what it you know it is what it is and i again i feel silly that i felt so i felt like i was being so educated uh, and you know, I, I will give the movie credit for trying to be smart, for trying to push people outside of, of a narrow way of thinking about things. But, uh, it's really not that many ticks away from traffic. I just think traffic is, has more stakes. It has more relatable people and it has Steven Soderbergh directing. So I think that's a much more successful film. Um, it's a much more successful film. You can make sense of it. The, little uh filters help immensely right. in differentiating the storylines yeah um well i i didn't hate revisiting the movie it was interesting to kind of catch up with my thoughts but i do apologize for choosing such a such a homework movie um i know what your next selection is and since you i guess you've already watched it i can tell you now my next selection is going to be rushmore because i want to do something fun and I want to talk about Anderson, and it's been a really long time since I saw some of those early Andersons. So, and that'll be a lot of fun because you forced me to watch that movie. So, oh. <laughs> at your apartment, I'm doing it again. At the uh, remember that first place where everybody lived, uh, the Depew, yes, Avenue House, the yeah. Depew House in a in a tiny little room and a on a mattress on the floor. Oh wow! I, I watched. <laughs> I watched Rushmore. Okay. Well. We're going to see if I was full of it or not. I can't wait to watch that. Uh, but that's a couple weeks away because you you made your selection, which is yeah, Gods we're, and Monsters. Yeah, we're watching Gods and Monsters. Which neither of us have seen in the past. So <laughs> Well, I, it, technically, I saw it a week ago, which is the past. There you go. So now and you can see I, how well it holds up. I need to see how well it holds up a week later. But right. I can, um, I, I'll have things to say about it from 1998, though, because I remember Good. its presence yeah um in in that award 
Derby and maybe why I wanted to watch it or didn't or what. Yeah, I remember it and I remember it being prestigious and I remember, but for some reason it felt like it was inaccessible, like it wasn't mine. I don't, and now looking back, I'm like, why not? It, it was acclaimed. I could have watched mm-hmm. it at any time. Right. But uh, that's why we're here. So I will enjoy catching up with that. Yeah, I'm looking forward to talking about it. Great. All right, Dan, uh, I think we did it. This has been our podcast. Uh, you can follow us both on Twitter and Letterboxd, and you can follow the show at Holds Up Pod on Twitter. Our music is by Jonah Rapino, and thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you next time. Bye. I mean, if if we didn't get this, I'm not talking about that again. <laughs>